Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. The six most important words in Jewish tradition are the words of the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Listen, Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. And when you look inside a Torah scroll at these words from the book of Deuteronomy, you will notice that the last letter of the word Shema, the letter Ayin, and the last letter of the word Echad, the letter Dalet, are written much larger than the rest. The Ayin and the Dalet stand out, and if you take them together, they spell a different Hebrew word, Ed, which means witness. In many ways, the holiest act a person performs in their lifetime is to listen, to bear witness. There is a human compulsion to testify. In moments of great joy or moments of intense sadness, we need to tell our story. When something wonderful happens, all we want to do is tell someone. And when something is awful or something terrible happens to us, we want to tell that story too. It's not enough for us to know our own experience and truth. We need others to know. We want others to share in our experience. And the Torah, in some respects, is a great collective testimony to the truths that we learn through our experience of slavery and deliverance, from our coming together to be one with each other and God at Sinai, and our wanderings through the wilderness to arrive at the promised land. Our ancestors needed to tell the story of their journey. And that testimony has been passed on carefully generation after generation to guide us in our own journeys through history and through life. Brene Brown once said that narrative is data with a soul. Knowing the historical facts of what happened in a given time or place or incident is one thing, and hearing someone relate their experience of what happened to them in that time or place connects us soul to soul. The massacre of more than 1,200 Israeli individuals on October the 7th inflicted a wound on the collective body of the people of Israel. But October 7th is just a date. Kfar Aza, Kibbutz Beri, the Supernova Dance Festival, just places. 1,200 is just a number. But for thousands more who survived, their individual stories are unique and precious and sacred. Many feel a compelling need to tell their stories, and there is a compelling need for us to listen. And thus, the work of the team of a new podcast in Israel called Rays of Light is truly divine. They are capturing the stories of women who survived the attacks of October 7th and sharing them through the voices of Israeli actors and through the magnificent sand art of Ilana Yahav. The team is led by famed Israeli actress Dana Devoren, who for more than 20 years acted and performed on television and on stage, hosting dozens of programs for children and adults, appearing in leading roles on stage in musicals and theater productions. She has written and produced dozens of works and serves as founder, CEO, and co-artistic director of the Platforma Association, an activist theater that works to promote women victims of violence. Liat Fishman-Lenny is also with us today. She is a multifaceted artist with a rich portfolio in the realms of directing, playwriting, and acting. As a director, she has earned acclaim for her work with youth theater, including four original plays and the prestigious Best Director Award at the 2021 Haifa International Children's Theater Festival. In addition, she is an accomplished playwright and director in the broader theater world. Nira Fuchs is, from 1999 and onward, a professional narrator in commercials, TVs, shows, promos, promotional and training films, and more. And since 2015, has been one of the founders and members of the board of the Platform Association. And we're so grateful to have all three of them with us today. So thank you all for being here with us. I know it's such a difficult and challenging time there in Israel. Thank you for uh, inviting us uh, to be with you. It's uh, an honor for us. So if you can tell us a little bit, Dana, what inspired you to pull this team together to produce this project? Um, first of all, I want to tell you that uh, 
your, your things that you said in the beginning was very exciting. I didn't know about it, I didn't notice, and it's very, very persistently for the, it gives it, you know, another, it brings another, another perspective, which is, which is very interesting, and um, I wanted just to say that. So for me, I think that when it happened, uh, all of us, all Israelis were in shock. We were so unprepared for this uh, thing to happen. We find ourselves, I found myself lying in bed, watching television all day long, seeing these horrible things that the monster did to us. And I was like in coma. I said to myself, how can I do something about that? How can I move myself from being in a shock, in a shock to do some action? And you know, in theater, we are doing a lot of action. That's the way for us to make an uh, activic, activistic art, you know. So it was uh, on Thursday morning that I woke up and I said to myself, okay, Dana, enough lying in bed. You have to do something. You have to take those testimonies and tell all the world what happened here. Um, and I thought to myself, how can we make those testimonies and show the world what happened without showing them all those horrible scenes that we saw on television on in the, or in the Facebook, in the Instagram, because it was very hard watching it. And I thought to myself, I have two, two, uh, two, two girls. Uh, they were watching those horrible movies. And I thought to myself, how can we tell those stories without showing these horrible scenes that I saw them and I thought to myself, I cannot see it any, anymore, but I should tell those stories. And then when I, I understand that there is another way to take those testimonies and spread it all over the world. And I called my college, Ira, Liat, Shlomit, Ilana, Ronen, eh, Andrea, Sharon, Anael. We are like eh, 10, uh, 10 creators in this uh, project that we are working together. I told them my vision and we sat all together just from the beginning and started to think what is the best way to pass it through to other generations also for children, for an adult, that we want to tell those story, but without all these horrible things that uh, makes our brain, you know, explode, uh, <laughs> that burn explode. our, yes. Um, you know, that, that's where it came from. And from there, we, we thought about, you know, doing this art, in the sand because we are fighting for our land and the sand is our land and the sand is like you say in the bible and this word is uh, i think put it this on front uh, and this was my uh, first association how to make this story became from the land and then you know make this uh, a part of what I want to express to other generations. So Ilana Yahav, who is this remarkable artist who does this lit sandbox art for those who are not familiar, is incredibly powerful and in many ways haunting. In the show notes, you'll be able to see links to several of the testimonies that you have already captured and how she presents and takes the narrative that you've cultivated and amplifies it, again, as you say, not through graphic images, but in many ways, images that express things that even maybe a photograph can't quite convey. And I always thought that it was so interesting to use this vehicle of sand art because it's impermanent, because she makes this magnificent image and then literally with the wave of her hand, it's gone. And I wondered if maybe one of you could talk a little bit about that vehicle of what does it mean to make this 
incredible work of art that is in many ways so temporary, so impermanent. And is that a part of what it is to capture the human experience that, you know, a moment is over in an instant and it's very hard to capture it, even whether you're sitting and creating a work like a sculpture or a painting or a photograph, which freezes it that piece of uh, media is is constantly dynamic and changing. And I wondered sort of if that was part of what you were thinking as a creative team. No, I, I think that in art, it's very, first of all, it's very interesting what you say, because I didn't thought about it, I must say. But I think that in art, and as a director, I am all the time thinking about that. And I'm sure that Liat, as a director, also can join me in this kind of uh, thinking that if you give the audience something, I believe that each one is taking a part of your idea. And there is a lot of others that gives you another idea on your idea. This, this, this is, I think, the most beautiful thing in art, because you can give each one to think what you want about your art, a different interpretations, and I think that if we're talking about a sand art, and if we're talking about the way it can vanish and the way it can transfer, everything about that is relevant to what we did. Although, even if I didn't thought about this and I thought about so many other things that I can tell you, I'm taking your interpretation and I want it to be also mine now. You know what I mean? Because I know that each one that will take a look at this art will have his interpretation. And I think that uh, through time, I will understand more about my intuitive choosing this sand art that in the beginning I was cut by some idea, but all the way I will cut all others idea that goes on with this uh, sand narrative and combine this all to an art that, um, that can change, as you said, that can vanish, as you said, that can be so, so connected to the Israeli, to the Jewish people, to the earth, Israel, the land. This is the Jewish story. And what's happened here, like a second Holocaust, makes us understand even more that we want this land and we will fight for this land. And we will do everything that we can to make this land, you know, as pure as we can for us and for all the other generations. So as you listen to these narratives and these stories, has it been hard to find people to come forward to tell their stories? Why is it so important that we capture these stories? Uh, maybe Liat, if you want to share your experience. For people, as you said at the beginning, it's very important to give their witness to what they've experienced. And for me, to be part of this uh, project is very important for me to be witness to those witnesses. Being part of it is being part of helping them carry the experience that they had and to take it on and to make it memorable even though it's constantly changing, reference to what we talked about before, about the sand that is always changing. And that's what I think, that it's very, very important to, as we know, things that are not, you're not witnessing them, they're not existing. And it's very, very, very important to keep this memory of what happened here. Because as we can experience now, the world doesn't want to see it doesn't want to hear it. And this is our mission to take it and bring it on. I want to add to what Liat said, uh, that's very important because she said something that we all know. The world doesn't want to hear. The world doesn't want to know. And it's very easy to say, well, don't, don't show me this horrible thing. I, I cannot handle it. It's too much for me. And this is why we would like to show it and to tell it in other way that even if somebody say it's too much for me, there is another way to tell this story 
another way that you can say it and people can hear it without saying it's too much or too hard for me. Uh, I want to add that it's not easy for us to hear all these stories. And when we are recording them in the studio, we often cry, all of us. But it's a mission to do it and to, re- to capture it as close to the experience itself because we know that after a while we're looking back and we see things differently. And it's very important, <clears throat> very important for us to catch the moment that it happened without interpretation that comes after that. So it's important, important for us to do it now, not in one year or two years. So I was thinking about, for you, the experience of capturing all of these testimonies. When we were in Israel, so many people we met would say, yeah, you can look on the calendar and it might say December 14th, 21st, whatever the date is, right? But to most people in Israel, every day is October 8th. It's always the day after. And uh, as an Israeli in this moment, uh, each of you is embedding herself in that day that every day for you is reliving October 7th through the testimonies that you capture. And I wonder what that's like for you to have to continually relive different facets of October 7th, you know, each time that you gather people and collect their testimonies. And then again, as you curate them and produce them, we'll talk a little bit about sort of what that process is in a minute. But can you talk a little bit about your own spiritual experience of what it is to listen to these testimonies so frequently and to inhabit that space uh, so often? Maybe, Ira, if you want to start for us. First of all, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful experience. And yeah, sometimes we do cry in the studio. Although, you know, even if I was, uh, I've written this story, when I hear it with narration, it's totally different. It gives you a totally different experience. Um, We try to bring a variety of stories. We try to go everywhere, like to the kibbutzim and to people who were in the mesiba, and even to doctors who worked in hospitals who got most of the wounded that day. And we try to show the widest angle as we can, because as you said, it touched everybody in Israel and everybody still feel it. And there's another aspect, you know, we have people still there in Gaza. A good friend of mine is still there. So as long as they're there, we still live October 8th. Yeah. (laughs) I feel that there is nothing else. You know what I mean? There is. How can you do something? We're waking up in the morning and it's like every day you woke up and you say, oh, my God, it's it's reality. It is. It, it, it was just two months ago. We are sitting in the studio and there is an actress that's reading these testimonies and we are listening and you, you think you're, you're hearing a, a story from the Holocaust, you know what I mean? And you, we are looking at each other in the studio and we are telling, oh my God, it's here, it's now, it's just two months ago. We, 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 we cannot believe it yet. People need to understand that we are uh, we are all in trauma here in Israel. <laughs> Not only in Israel, or I think that all Jews around the world are taking it uh, very, very deeply hard. But here, day by day, we live the trauma. We are talking about the trauma. We cannot do things, you know, I think for like one month, I felt so guilty if I was laughing. I felt guilty to, to do things, and I, I didn't go to buy uh, clothes, I didn't go to a restaurant, until now, I feel guilty. I know that people are in Gaza, I know that there was murder for so many people, children, women. I cannot live regularly when this happened just right now, and we are still in a very, very big trauma. It will take us time, it will take us time, and I think 
Israel and people won't be the same. You know, I'm the same Dana, but my heart is broken. It can't, it can't be complete. And we didn't thought, you know, that after 75 years here, it will happen and it will be so evil. Again, this, this shock, it, it can't leave me. I think not just me, each one of us. I think we're all kind of living in, in that space. Um, I used to sort of have a tradition that after I finished uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and preparing my messages and sermons for the congregation, I would close all of those books and I would pick up something frivolous or something that didn't have to do with anything, just a pleasure book, which I don't always get to have the time to avail myself of. And I, I didn't do it this year because I just don't feel like reading something for pleasure. Yeah. It, it's just, it's sitting on me. Uh, I think it's sitting on all of us. Yeah, it is. Yeah, of course. So I want to talk a little bit about what you've chosen to do, because it's not just capturing the stories that you're, you've chosen to do. It's to capture them and then to interpret them, not just through the sand art, which you've talked about, but also to interpret them by creating a narrative that is distilled which I think you had shared with me is about five minutes or so, maybe a little bit longer. And then it's not rendered in the voice of the person who bore that testimony. You've called on your colleagues among Israeli actors to voice that testimony. And I'm wondering about that whole process of capturing and producing and reinterpreting and revoicing. And what does it mean to invite other artists to inhabit someone else's story, to make their story your story, and to literally translate it into another language, as I know, Ira, you do. I think you're the primary English person on the team. Not that the other, rest of you don't have good English. I'm very impressed, and no, I no, promise. No, no, Ira, Ira is the best. Ira is the best. <laughs> She's the master. Uh, and, uh, and, and just sort of maybe if you want to talk a little bit about what it is to take possession of someone's story and then to try to faithfully render it in an artistic frame that still is authentic to the story, uh, while making it in many ways also your own and to the actor who voices it. So first of all, our start point is in their word some interview they gave or something they wrote themselves about the experience. And we take that and edit that. So basically we start with the, let's call it survivors words. Then we edit it into our format, which is basically keeping it short not going into very many details and uh, just telling the essence of the story and then, you know, doing it with the sand art. So this is one thing about the voices. Not everybody is capable of telling their own story. We decided that we're going to use actors in general because some people can do it, some people cannot do it, and we don't want to distinct. We decided to go for actors as as a standpoint of this project. For me, you know, because because I'm a narrator, because I do voiceovers, for me it's natural to tell other people's stories. This is what I do for a living. So it, it, it wasn't strange in any way to me, but I can understand the question. And I have to say that we try and match an actress that resembles the heroine, uh, that sounds the same, that reminds us in some way. We try to stay in the neighborhood, as we say. I would like to add something for uh, what Ira says. From the point of view uh, of... Uh, I'm working with uh, women who suffered from violence for 10 years. In our theater, we are doing testimony theater, and we give them the opportunity to tell their story in their word, in their voice. It's a hard work doing it with those women that survive trauma. 
you have to do it and to give them a lot of time and to be with them and to lead them and to hug them. And it's a very, very sensitive thing to do with uh, women that suffered from a big trauma. It doesn't mean which kind of trauma. I think that the most uh, beautiful thing here, and we heard it from one of the, our uh, heroes in this project, uh, she said something that I recognize from my work with uh, women that suffered from violence. She said that it's easier for her to hold this story when she have a partner. And we can see that in my theater when we are doing testimonies and we are combining uh, professional uh, theater actors with the woman and you can see them sharing this part together and how it helps the woman and relieves her because another woman can help can hold this story with her. And also I would like to say that there is uh, a therapeutic point to observe, to, to look at their testimony with a distance. It gives them an opportunity to, to watch it, to hear it, to understand it and to process it. Uh, and it's a good way of therapeutic through art, and I know it because I'm doing it for a long time, in few ways. And this was a concept that in top of it, what stand was, we want to give a voice to all the women that wants to tell their stories. And if we're doing it in an artistic way, we would like that every woman can say, can tell her story in her word, and we will put an actress and she will read the testimony. And another thing, there is a very big difference uh, between acting the story, which we don't do. The, the, the uh, actress is not acting the story. We put the drama away. We give the narrative, the story, a place. We tell it. I just wanted to add, we approach the women. We ask for their permission to do their story. And after we write the story, we send it to them. And if they have things that they want to correct or make it more precise, we, of course, change it accordingly. Yes. And I want to say that uh, for us, the biggest idea is to give each one of them a voice to those who can tell their story and to those who can't tell their stories. And this is our mission. There is a big difference uh, between acting the story and telling the testimony. And here, the actresses are telling the story in, the, in their words. Uh, we're not changing it, and we're not making a drama of it. We are giving it as it is. Liat, did you want to add something? Yeah, I wanted to add that um, we're helping them carry the story. It's a very heavy story. We're helping them carry the story. And when they are hearing, in connection to what you said, Dana, uh, we give them validation to what they experienced. And they hear the story from a different perspective, a different point of view, and it gives them something to, to hold. They see themself, themselves from outside. And it's uh, in the healing process of the trauma, it's a very, very important stage uh, to tell the story from the beginning to end. Because in trauma, you know, uh, sometimes big parts are missing from the story. The narrative is not complete. And if we can help these women to have the narrative complete, that they will know, that they will have their evidence that what happened at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, I think it's part of the healing process as well. And I would like to say just for the end that there is a lot of interviews with a lot of women. There is a lot of uh, articles. We, we are doing, we chose to do an artistic way of this uh, podcast. So this is not the same. So I, I can relate to the idea of sort of that sacred obligation of being faithful and telling a story, because for those of us 
who live in the diaspora, who live here in the United States, thousands of miles away from the site of the trauma, there is sort of an obligation for those of us who have walked through Kibbutz Beri, who have seen Ofakim, who have visited the state in these difficult days to be faithful in telling the stories of what we saw and in telling the stories of the people that we met and to make sure that their experience is heard. But I also imagine, you know, I was thinking about some of the people who guided us, the young man who guided us through Kibbutz Beri, who does this a few times a day every day, some of the people that we met along the way who have told their stories multiple times and how difficult that is. And it was interesting. I asked this young man at Kibbutz Beri, I said, what's it like for you to do this every day? And he said, it helps and it hurts. He said, it hurts because, and, and he related to us, the fact that I'm standing here, he said, is just an accident. I could have just as easily been murdered as anybody else. It happened, they didn't come to my house. I don't know why they didn't come to my house. They didn't come to my house. He says, but it helps because I feel like I'm I'm sharing the story so that people know what happened here. And so I wonder, you know, Donna, as you have spent so much time with your partners trying to help women heal from trauma and now in this project, what is it about the process of testifying that helps in the healing process for a survivor of trauma? What does it do for them? And if you can maybe give us an example from the testimonies you've collected of how maybe telling the story was helpful to the person who had to relive it in the telling. I have a lot of um, examples. I will give you one example, for first of all, from Platforma, okay? I hope I can say it in English. I will try to. So our last theater show called uh, In Her Eyes was about three women that each one of them had a huge trauma in their childhood. We did display in the Kamari Theater, which is the biggest theater in Israel. There was three actresses, professional actresses from the theater that were playing our three heroes. They were together on stage doing the same part, but with the tricks. But it doesn't really matter how does the play was written. But what's matter, that was like two women for each part. One of them was the real women and the other one was an actress there was one thing that was uh, very hard to direct because it was reliving the rape doesn't mean to show the rape on stage of course we are not doing those kind of thing Uh, we are not showing any violence on stage even though we are telling a very violent story i always prefer not to make it violent. So we have to do this scene, and it was very hard for me to do it, because, you know, the woman is standing here, it's her trauma, and we are now going through the trauma. We bring her to the time she had the trauma, and we relive it uh, on stage. After I did this, after I direct this uh, scene, it was very hard. And I'm telling you, there was no violence at all. It was only doing things with chairs. Only emphasizing, not showing like real horrible things. I've seen this show and I can tell you it was the most beautiful, poetic, touching, moving thing that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was really poetic, uh, although it's hard to say poetic on those kind of things, but I'm using this word also. It gives it some other perspective. But this woman, I called her at night, of course, to ask her how does she feel? Because, you know, it's very sensitive and we lead them together all the time. We are, you know, talking with them, asking them, we ask for the permission to do that, to do that. Although we are working with them for, for a long time, so many years, it doesn't matter. So I called her to ask her what, how does she feel after the rehearsal today. And then she said that something amazing happened to her. And suddenly, when she think about this moment, 
in her mind, when she go backwards to this moment in her trauma, she suddenly sees something else. She suddenly feel the actress being with her, holding her hand. She suddenly know that the one who harmed her is a friend now, is an actor, that she knows him. And when you, it's like in NLP, that you bring another picture to your mind, to your brain, and you recreate your trauma again, but with a power feeling. And the power feeling is to give you uh, an opportunity that you are now handling the story, that you are on control. I think the most scary thing for uh, people, women, men, doesn't matter, that, that somebody, something happened to them, a, a trauma that, that took from them their capability to control the situation is to give them back the opportunity to control the situation. And I think what's happened here uh, for the healing is when they are all the time with us, leading, we are leading them, they are leading us through their testimony, we're doing it together, they can be in control, they can say what they want, they can look at this from the side and they can understand it. It's a good, good way to help them control the situation. They can recreate the scene. But this was one example. I have another very small example from this project. One of our uh, survivors called Sophie Berzon Mekai, she just wrote uh, a post about what's happened here for her. How was it for her, this process? And she said exactly what just Liate said before, that she felt that someone is carrying this big, huge trauma with her, and it can give her a place to breathe and do not feel that she is carrying this all alone. And also it gives you a little bit distant from the story and being able to watch it from outside give you, as I said before, a different, <laughs> different perspective and you can understand the story better of what happened to you when you see it outside of you. And I'm thinking about just how powerful it is, I think, when people know they've been heard. You know, I was thinking about when we were in your studio a few weeks ago and there was a woman, Yasmin, who was relating her story. She was a survivor from the Supernova Dance Festival and how she hid in Berry and the story of how she was able to save her life in the midst of being held amongst a group of hostages uh, amongst the terrorists was terrifying and gripping. And I remember there was a little bit of time pressure uh, that we felt because we were supposed to have gone somewhere after, and I know you were under some time pressures. And at the same time, she really wanted to tell the whole story. And I said to my group leader who was getting a little itzy, I'm like, we've got nothing else to do here than to just listen to this story. Let her tell it. And I think, you know, as a rabbi, as someone who also is often in the presence of trauma, people want to tell what happened to them because they don't want to carry it alone. And they know that if somebody else has heard it, and it's now not just my story, it's our story, it's a collective story, then I'm not carrying that burden all alone. It's not as heavy. And I think that there is an incredible gift that you're giving, not to just the Israelis who will see uh, and hear these uh, stories that you're relating uh, through art and, and, and through narrative, uh, but for those of us, I'm so grateful that you're going through the extra effort to render them with subtitles and in English, so that those of us for whom Hebrew is not a native language can also bear these stories, and they can be our stories, because it's important that we carry them. I was uh, sitting with uh, my daughter last night, and we were watching some of the links to the videos that, that you sent, and, and she's in tears watching with me. Uh, she's 25 years old. And now those stories are her stories because she says, hey, you know, the fact that I'm in the United States and they're in Israel is in some ways an accident. She lived in Israel for half a year. She 
She feels that. Uh, she grew up in a Zionist home. So, you know, as you said earlier, you know, these are not just stories of Israeli women. These are stories of human beings and human beings can can carry them. And I hope that it has been as healing for them because it's not easy to live in those stories. But it is, I think, in many ways, as you say, empowering. I think one of the things that I've heard from all of the different people that I've met who experienced October 7th was how disempowering it was to be attacked. All of these stories are about what happened to me and the power that was taken away. And I think for Israelis who were not down there, it's still a disempowering act because it was a wound inflicted and they couldn't do anything to stop it. They couldn't do anything to help it. Uh, and so I relate, uh, Donna, to the need to want to do something in response and how you know, interesting that you chose a project that restores a sense of power to the people who had their power taken away. Uh, I'd like to ask, now that it's several weeks since Simchat Torah, since that Black Shabbat, what does Israel need to heal? For you three as Israelis and for those who have been given safekeeping of so many stories and who are living in the midst of a traumatized society, how does Israel move forward? How do you heal? First of all, we must get the abducted people back. For me, that's the first step for whatever you do. You're absolutely right. This is the first step. Uh the unwritten uh, uh, contract between the country and the people who lives in the country, that the country will take care of them. And this is also broken on that day. because And that's why the wound goes so deep. Because it's not just about, of course, first thing is about people being murdered and what happened, but also that the, the my country didn't guard me in so many aspects. This is a big break. The, the bond between the country and the citizens has broken. And I think, I believe we have a long way to go to, to fix it. But I also believe that after such a trauma, after such a big thing, awful thing that has happened, you can look forward for something big, good thing to happen. We need to learn from this thing. We have, we don't have a choice. We don't have another choice. You know, Liat, we're recording this during the last uh, days of Hanukkah. This idea that there needs to be some kind of light in the darkness is, I think, an image that people are holding everywhere. And I, you, you actually, in one of the episodes, gave very dramatic voice to that sense of alienation. And not to take away from any of the valor, the heroism of those who responded, the police forces that rose up, the security forces on the different kibbutzim that gave their lives, uh, and all of the heroes that literally jumped in their car to go and try to help. But there was one story that you related where repeatedly in the brief narrative, you know, you're taking a long narrative and distilling it to five, six minutes. Where is the effing army? Was over and over again. Where is the army? And I know that that was the lived experience of people who were hiding in bushes and in and, and shelters uh, with bullets and grenades and, and shrapnel and wounds, physical and emotional waiting to be rescued for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And I, I've heard that from so many Israelis of this sense that where were they? I think this is the strongest motion. People feel abandoned, betrayed. I, you know, when you're talking just right now, I have, I can see, I remember those moments. We are sitting in the salon. The television is open. We're, we are trying to understand what happened. We see Dani Kushmaro, which is the, um, the news anchor, talking with people that are whispering from their mamad, okay? And I'm talking about like seven hours, okay? Seven hours, like this, even, even more, okay? And, and he is on TV 
not the not the army, not the, the police, and I'm not uh, blaming the army and the police now. Okay, uh, I have um, my blaming is not for now. Uh, my my problem is with the government, and uh, but but we 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 are watching this Danny Kushmerio talking with people, whispering, and tell, telling them, please come to come to help us, come to rescue us. We're talking about seven or eight hours that everybody, people were begging for help and everybody, all the Israeli audience, I think like nine million people here in Israel looking at, tel at the television and saying, what is happening here? That's why this trauma is so, so big. And this trauma is talking about a trust. We lost our trust and it's a very big problem. And I think when the trust will come back to us, that's what we want, to live here and to feel that somebody is take, watching us. Somebody is telling, telling us that they are protecting us. But this day, we felt that nobody is protecting us and anything can happen. So I think that the problem is against the Hamas, of course, because what they are doing, it's horrible and it's evil, it's monster, it's, we, we cannot imagine that those things can happen, but there is another problem inside the country in, with the people in Israel, with the gaps in Israeli society that uh, should be healed, I think. And I think that as you, you share your frustrations, the challenges that Israeli society faces you know i think we we it's hard to even remember somebody was talking to me the other day and they were reminding me of something i agreed to do in september and were asking if i had done that and frankly i don't even remember the conversation like like before october 7th like what ha there was a like it's hard to remember but you know it was just you know a few months ago that you had hundreds of thousands of people in the street in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem around the country every week because of the fractures in israeli society and then in the immediacy of the attack, those fractures sort of just became non-important. And everybody sort of came together because of this trauma, of this emergency that happened. I think that there is a sense of bearing witness to not only what happened on October 7th, but to the ruptures to tell those stories of what people experienced that day, because I think it's only when we are able to really hold someone else's truth that there can be real healing. And when people who felt abandoned that day are heard and know that they were heard by someone who says, yes, I want to protect you and we didn't and here's how we're going to fix it or this uh compact that we have in the state of israel where if you send your children to the army they will come home for all of the people who still are spending these days god knows where and in what condition in our synagogue i wish you were here with us god willing there will come a time you can come to the states we have the names uh, and the pictures of everyone held hostage right in the front of the synagogue for everyone to see. And we have another display of where the people who came home who were rescued. So we don't pretend that their trauma is over just because they're back in their own home because God knows the wounds that they are carrying physically and emotionally. Uh, and I think that there is this collective need for us as a society to bear witness to what happened, to all of what happened, not just to the attacks, not just to the survivors or the wounded or the kidnapped, but to everything that happened in Israeli society, because it's when we hold those truths together. I was talking to a young man who serves in a unit in Gaza, and he said, in my unit, there are Ashkenazim and Sephardim and, and, and Ethiopians, and there are people who are Dati and Chiloni, people who are religious and not religious. There are people who supported the judicial reforms. There are people who protested against the judicial reforms. We are all in one unit, and we are all fighting to save each other, and it doesn't matter. Because the army in Israel is the biggest melting pot of the society. 
and they're hearing, you know, in, in the midst of their fighting, they're hearing each other's truths and they're making room for them. And they're saying, listen, I don't have to agree with you, but I can love you because I hear your story and I know your humanity. And I think one of the things that has inspired me most about, you know, watching from afar and then having visited was this idea of unity without uniformity and this idea that we can hold each other's stories and we can see each other for the differences and at the same time realize Kol Yisrael Arvim that we are all un- uniquely responsible for each other. We have a big, big luck. We have a big luck that the people in Israel are amazing, amazing, really. Because day after, everybody here, doesn't matter Sfaradim, Ashkenazim, Shchorim, Levanim, you know, doesn't matter where they are coming from, black and white, what their colors and what they are, where they came from. Everybody was there to help each other without any uh, political uh, thoughts or, or differences because we are a very, very good and amazing, uh, amazing people in Israel, really. Amazing, and this is our power. I, I want to refer. I want to refer to what you said. You said uh, that uh, they wanted to fix it. I don't think that we can fix what happened. You can't fix that. I don't think we should fix it. I think we need to start something new, because what we had, what we had, brought us to this point exactly. So we need to build something new in the society, in the politics, in economics in everything. And in the same way that we carry these narratives of these people who lived thousands of years ago as Jews, we we carry the stories of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Miriam and all of those who bore those stories across the generations. So hopefully as we carry these stories forward, we will find that path forward to recreate a new a new future. I'm so grateful for you spending time. I'm really really grateful for the project that you've taken on to render these stories and to give them as gifts to the world. The project that Dana and Liat and Ira and their team are doing is called Rays of Light, and you can find links to their productions on the show notes. And uh, we are grateful that we get to carry those stories with you. And we wish you safety and collective healing for you and for the people whose testimonies are gathered. The Essential Questions podcast has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, and Susan Stallone. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website, tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. Share this podcast with your friends, rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And we want to know what are your essential questions. Let us know by emailing us at eq at I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks for listening to the Essential Questions Podcast.